A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast from the art newspaper in which I talk to artists about their influences from writers to filmmakers, musicians and of course other artists and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Alvaro Barrington, for whom painting is the bedrock of a practice that incorporates installation, sculpture and found objects, textiles, the written word and community events. He weaves together broad references, drawing on his personal and cultural background and hugely diverse influences, particularly from art history, literature, political thought and music, to create arresting and often exuberant constellations of imagery and materials. Alvaro was born in Caracas in Venezuela in 1983 to Grenadian and Haitian parents. He was raised first in the Caribbean and then in Brooklyn, New York. Both locations are at the core of his art today, to the extent that exhibitions at Sadie Cole's HQ in London and Tadeus Ropak in Paris in autumn 2023 are themed around his experiences of growing up in the Caribbean and New York, respectively. The ways in which these aspects manifest varies. They might be in the very stuff of the art, in the way he uses certain materials, to evoke the spaces and buildings of Grenada, for instance, but they might also be in the themes or the overall spirit, as in the way he's used lyrics from the 1990s hip-hop that was the soundtrack of his teenage years in Brooklyn as text, but also as a thematic structure. Alvaro teases out these forms and ideas across bodies of work in a way that foregrounds experimentation and play and gives a sense of his process. The atmosphere of the studio feels ever-present, something that he emphasised even in his first solo museum show at MoMA PS one in New York in 2017, the year he graduated from his MA at London Slade School. He'd done his BA at Hunter College in New York before that. The PS1 installation deliberately evoked Alvaro's London studio of the time, with paintings hung tightly together, canvases on the floor casually leaning against the walls, a table with postcards into which he'd sewn swatches of yarn, and a kind of notice board of images, post-it notes, sketches and snatches of handwritten text. Like everything since, it had a discursive quality. Each piece feels as if it's being formed through association with the objects and other pieces around it and through its interaction with its audience. It's also in open and sometimes declared dialogue with various cultural individuals and movements. The pan-Africanist writer and politician Marcus Garvey was a focus for a particular series and other pieces have alluded to the Harlem Renaissance and the poet Audre Lorde, who we discussed in the conversation. These references, alongside the perennial presence of hip-hop, are part of a consistent foregrounding of the struggle, resistance, and cultural production of African diasporic communities. Indeed, if there's one abiding concern across all Alvaro's practice, it's community. It's there in the reference to his formative neighbourhoods and his heritage. It's central to his ongoing commitment to producing work for the Notting Hill Carnival in London. It's evident in the way he invites artists to share his stage, as with the Brazilian textile artist Sonia Gomez and the Jamaican-born New York-based artist Paul Anthony Smith, who will show with Alvaro at Sadie Coles in September 2023. And it's also clear that he sees his artistic forebears from the first people to make marks on the walls of caves onwards as a community to be paid homage to. So I began our conversation by asking, why is community so important to him?
we're social beings. And I think our value is always in relationship to each other. And it's kind of like a basic existential kind of idea. But I think any kind of engagement requires a type of um, pressure that could only be realized through how others respond to it. And art is really important in that it needs to have a large response within a group of people or as you're just kind of masturbating, I think. You know, it, it needs to have voices that, that understand that they're a part of the same community that you're also engaging with. There have been artists, of course, who, who have been quite happy making work for their peers, for an artist community and not wanting to necessarily reach out to a broader public. But you want to go beyond those confines, right? It's, yes, it's the art world, but it's also reaching people beyond the art world. And increasingly, you're testing that. You're pushing your work into areas like the Glastonbury Festival, Notting Hill Carnival, where your work is seen by people who aren't necessarily at all cognizant of developments in contemporary art. Yeah, I think there's some interesting narratives that has formed under modernism that maybe if you look at the long history of art, especially painting, doesn't really add up. I think painting has always been much more about a larger social engagement. The last times we spoke, we talked about a visit to Rome for me to go see some Baroque churches, but it was really critical and important for me to go over there because if you think about the pressures of that generation, you had average lifespan, like in their 20s and 30s, women having three or four miscarriages before they could have a single birth. And I think we sort of dehumanize the experiences of those people. I think they were just as traumatized by a miscarriage as a woman is today. And one of the only places they had choice was which church they went to. And so the leadership in the church needed to give folks a reason to go to feel okay about carrying on for one more week. And that meant great Caravaggio paintings, paintings that felt alive. But it also meant an experience that made you say, wow, okay, I'm okay with life. Those churches were extremely expensive. Every church that was built required an intense amount of capital. And so it had to be as effective in terms of its aim of making people feel okay with the life that they were living, making them feel like Jesus died for them, for them to be in this suffering that they were going through. And it was extremely effective. That's why the Catholic Church grew. Are you saying then that you want your work to offer emotional kind of experiences for your audience then? That, of course, your, your role doesn't have to play the role of religious instruction, for instance, or a sort of sense in which by reading this, it will help guide you to a fruitful and, and happy afterlife. Mm-hmm. You know, your work doesn't have any restrictions in terms of what it needs to do. No. But you, you still have aims for it yourself in terms of almost like a kind of moral role or a kind of, a, a, you know, an emotional power that it can convey to, to an audience. Well, I think there's several ways that art can live with us. You could experience something and then after you think about the narrative and the work, it ends up playing an intellectual narrative that you become self-conscious of as you go by. I know that that's happened with uh, many works where they they did something in the work and then I think about the strategy that they use and then that becomes something that I think about in my life. So I think emotional is one strategy that art can use. Ideas of monumentality or 
I think about um, Philida Barlow and how she plays with monumentality, but it's not monumental at all, but its scale is massive, but it's not about making you feel little. It's so human. So human, but it's massive and scale. I mean, it's actually really big, but it never feels monumental, which is incredible because then you realize how much works that was monumental was made with the intention of being monumental. One of the ways, I think, in which your work engages with the public, it seems to me, relates to something that you clearly admire in other artists and other cultural figures, which is a kind of honesty. Yes. And it seems to me that you've, you've talked a lot about a kind of truth that you seek in yeah. all sorts of forms. And a lot of that is to do with, even within your own biography. You, you, you're very sort of direct about explaining your story, if you like, when, mm. when you talk about your work. Yeah, and this is, I think, one of the pressures that art is in right now is that, I mean, I'm very selfish with my art, and I think my art is really about me understanding myself. And I think if I do it in a way that's specific but open enough, other people will maybe understand something similar. And, I mean, that's what Tupac has done for me, you know, and he's, to me, the greatest artist of the last 40 years, at least for me. But... um I don't find any value in trying to lie to myself. You know, I don't want to live in bad faith. I don't want to tell myself I'm a six foot five basketball player. You know, so there are things that have happened. And I think artists' entire job is just to say, this is what I'm experiencing. And it maybe help us also understand what we're experiencing collectively. And then maybe we could move forward. I want to talk a bit about materiality in your work because you you talk about yourself as a painter. That's the fundament of of it all. But there's this incredibly rich materiality which can be in your making but also in found objects and so on. So when you're assembling your work, how does that come together? How planned, as in you prepare yourself with a palette of materials as well as a palette of colours, if you like? Or how much is it grabbing what's close to you and improvising? I mean, it's always planned. There's no material that isn't really carefully considered. I was listening to a podcast with Jeff Koons, and what was so brilliant about Jeff is that he really thinks about material and its history, porcelain, whatever, you know. And porcelain, of course, has a long history. So when he's playing with porcelain today, he's also playing with the history of porcelain, and that's what makes his work brilliant. I think, similarly, I'm... There is a material condition of having spent my early years in the Caribbean. And then there's a material condition of having lived in the city for most of my life. And um, I think these also speak to a very contemporary moment of where we are. Painting's really interesting because it's it's extremely conservative. And I've, I've been trying to push against it in that its surface structure, cotton or linen, was an in- innovation that was hundreds of years old. And it feels... Um, both incredibly wonderful, but also incredibly dated that that still is our default. You go to an art class and they go, here's a cotton canvas. But if you also look at the history of art, there's some incredibly beautiful works that needed to be on on a wood panel or a cave wall. And so I think that's also one of those dogmas that people have accepted and doesn't really make sense. Look at Rauschenberg. Yeah, but it's interesting how the individual materials that you're using can convey very specific meanings or more arcane meanings perhaps, but 
it seems to me that they are always rooted in meaning. You're, when you're using a material, it isn't just because you like the look of it. Yeah. It has to have a kind of symbolic factor in the work. Yeah. I mean, in one way, we're like in meme culture era. And meme culture is very much about taking in an image that you know and then making like a statement that's humorous or whatever. So I feel like we're, we've kind of gotten in this abundance of space where material is immediately emotive of something. I wanted to also ask about looking because mm. I heard this really lovely idea that you express, which is that painting gave you time. Mm. Painting gave you a space for looking. Yeah. In a way that, say, watching something on Netflix or watching a movie or whatever didn't and that yeah. you could, in theory, spend a whole day looking at a painting. In fact, you said you have. Yeah. Tell me about how much that relates to also to the studio activity. Do you spend a lot of time looking in the studio? Yeah. I spend a lot of time looking, period. I have really bad hearing, so like when I'm talking to someone, I'm usually looking at their lips. But um, I guess the back to that is is that I, I feel like artists, and I've said this before, but artists about how do we train our senses to be active. So learning to dance is about how do you find the possibilities within your body. Learning to look at painting is learning to slow your eyes down to kind of understand how to, how your eyes can work. And same with acting can help you understand how it is to embody the experience of someone else that can then help you become more empathetic to the person across from you. It's interesting you talk about a kind of sensory engagement because it seems to me that your work involves multiple senses. Hmm. I mean, you can say that about lots of painting, but on the one hand, you talked about like dance there and and about movement. Your work is full of bodily movement, it strikes me. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about, for instance, the way that some of the words that you inscribe into the concrete, for instance, mm. is very much something that we can all relate to, the feeling of that of, of fresh concrete that yeah. you see on, yeah. on the pavement and then it's inscribed into. Yeah. Um, we think about a bodily movement, a gesture that informs that. Yeah. But then also it has all sorts of tactile power as well. Yeah. So in a way, does each work need to have a bit more than the kind of visual, if you like, in order to properly exert its magic? No, but I think each work needs to do what it needs to do in order for it to be successful. And so there's some paintings that I make that is really about a kind of close looking that is much more about a kind of happening in your head. I did a show at Tommaso Corvimore that was really about a kind of intimate looking. Where's these boxes? But um, I also love like how painting can activate your body. So sometimes I try to use that as a tool because you can then have this kind of reaction, you know. I mean, the cement paintings that you referenced was very much, I'm pretty sure if I go back to my parents' house in front, there's the footprint and Alvaro Love's ex-girlfriend back then, (laughs) who I'm not going to mention, but (laughs) (laughs) But, um, there's something so emotive about that. I also think, you know, I mean, why I did that work was I don't think we've been extremely inventive when it comes to making art that is depicting city life, making paintings that is about depicting city life. I think we've done incredible jobs of depicting nature. But when you think about how most of society lives in a city and you think of very little innovation in terms of a painter who has said this experience is happening within the context of growing up in New York City or wherever, feels very limiting. Right. 
you know, we've had interior spaces, but yeah. And do you mean in a sense of like feeling rather than imaging the city in a way? Like yeah, kind exactly. Of it's experiencing it on a level that goes beyond street grids and, and buildings. I yeah, think. exactly. Exactly. It's about, a, I mean, very few, very few. Uh, I mean, Boogie Woogie is such a great city painting when you think about so many others. It's a lot of interior space, innovations in interior space paintings, but not so much about a, the activity. I, I, like being from New York, I love the streets of New York. As much as I love like my friends and family and the people, there's just something extremely magical about the streets and the corners and how corners intersect each other and how buildings make you feel. You see the Empire State Building and you go, wow, there's a certain incredible emotive feeling about that experience. And I think when you're from the city, I was really a city kid. Me and my friends would like, it's like that opening scene in Sex in the City with Carrie Bradshaw. I feel like that just has to happen in New York and people get it. And it just has that emotive quality of like the smoke coming up her in the pink dress and you go, oh yeah. And the bus drives and she almost gets splashed. There's just something about the fact that that's New York City that you go, wow, I get it. I'm going to move there. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? Maybe it was probably a musician or something like that. Probably is a Janet Jackson song or something like that, or maybe even a Celine Dion or Kenny G. (laughs) (laughs) I know that you grew up reading comics and they Mm. were quite a big influence on you. You were drawing sort of from comics quite early on. Yeah. Joe Matarara, all these Jim Lee, Akira... There was like this period in like 91, 92. Comic books kind of really was starting to become a bit more. They were transitioning from like the 90s, G.I. Joe, where things felt like very safe. And then Akira came and it just was like, what the fuck is that? I mean, the entire scene, because it was so interesting, because I think it was like maybe when I think about it, it's like Japan had experienced the war from the other side of it. And so their proclivity for illustrating disasters was huge. Whereas America, we kind of kept disasters away from us. So if you watch G.I. Joe, any of those 80s or Looney Tunes, disaster always felt very cartoony. And then there was just this period in the early 90s where it just felt like disaster felt like a real thing in cartoons. And I love drawing them. I also want to ask about Jacob Lawrence because I know you've said that mm. his book about mm. the Great Migration was a hugely important book for you from an art perspective but also as a book itself. Did you conceive of it as art or was it just a story in a way when, when you first came across it? Yeah, you kind of had to read it in school because they gave you these books that was during Black History Month and that was one of the books. And then at some point, I think I went to MoMA and saw them and um, I mean, they were so brilliant. I mean, he was so innovative and so inventive. And I also, much later, found it really inspiring because it was a way that art had disseminated into the masses. Which historical artist do you turn to the most today? Probably Piero or Louis Bourgeois. Probably Louis Bourgeois or Mike Kelly. I don't know. They're kind of hard to pick. It depends on the hour. Yeah, of course. Louis Bourgeois is, like again, a sort of classic New York Mm. figure, an extraordinary figure 
one of the things, of course, about her work, which is so extraordinary, is that she propelled that over decades. She yeah. somehow managed to keep innovating. Yeah. Is that a kind of an extraordinary example to you? Or is that almost intimidating that an artist can do that? I'm very competitive. <laughs> so I really, I really want to be a great artist. And I say that without necessarily feeling like shy about that. that was, but I think you become a great artist by being honest with yourself at every generation. And I think the reality is, you know, I'm 40 now, but this is my first time being 40. This is my first time having this experience. And so this is the greatest opportunity to make art of a 40-year-old. But when I'm 50, that'll be the first time I'll be 50. And that'll be the greatest opportunity to make art as a 50-year-old. Right. So you have to keep have. renewing his base. Yeah. Being 50, I'll have experiences that I would have never had. Maybe people would be dying. The world is going to be in a different space. If I'm honest, I'll make honest work at 50. That isn't me trying to be a 20-year-old kid. Talking about historical artists, we're actually surrounded by paintings which clearly evoke Kokusai's great wave here, and I know you've directly referred to that in titles. Mm. Tell me about absorbing that image and working with it. I'm kind of trying to do what Jacob Lawrence did, and I thought, oh, maybe if I take this uh, great wave motive, it just become much more than just an art historical reference. It's kind of become a cultural reference that maybe I could put it in cultural spaces like Glastonbury or Carnival, and that it maybe is able to balance it out somehow. When you say balance it out, do you mean give it a new significance, if you like? And and make it also something that matches the energy of Glastonbury or Carnival or whatever. I, I don't think I'm necessarily there yet, but I think I keep getting better at it. In a way, it's about trying to replicate through art that kind of the feeling among surges of groups of people Mm. and and that kind of emotional power of that can be produced by a community. Yeah, and or mostly just respond to how people experience the story of themselves in Carnival or Glastonbury versus how people experience themselves in a gallery or a museum. Mm. Those require different type of emotional spaces. I'm trying to make sure that all of these spaces that I'm responding to it in a real way. And not trying to dominate it and say, okay, here's my painting on a stage and therefore it has value. That's not really interesting to me. It has value because it holds the space and holds meaning in the space in the way that people who experience it understand it. One of the qualities in the show that you did called Artists That I Steal From Mm. where you chose, co-curated with Julia Payton-Jones, a selection of artists that you have looked at and spent time absorbing and so on it it seems to me that you were trying to rethink or just bring your own perspective to them and and try to explain to an audience why it might be that an artist today might be responding to their contemporaries and historical ancestors in this way but I, i think one of the ways that's instructive is that you're trying to think, well, what don't we know about these artists? Huh. And certainly with Matisse, it seems to me that you're trying to sort of retell his story because you consistently pointed to the fact that he spent time in Harlem, yeah. in jazz clubs, yeah, and that massively affected him. Yeah, he made a book called Jazz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think there's two parts. I think one way is how stories have came to us. And one of the ways that stories have come to us and how it currently exists is a story that has actively decided that, I mean, firstly, I would say, and I've said this before, culture has always been 
developed by every group of person, every individual in history. But what has sort of happened is that in the way we've told stories about those cultural production, it has kind of erased all of the women, people of color, whatever, and has placed the creative genius and white men. So I think we really have to reimagine how we're telling these stories and actually be honest about how we're telling those stories and how cultural exchanges has always happened, especially because when you think about artists, it always happened in global international cities, whether it's Venice or Amsterdam or London today or New York. These are always touch points of many different groups coming together to form something new, figure out how to communicate with each other because of the differences are so far apart that they have to kind of be together. That's what makes the American social experiment so amazing. So yeah, there's an active misrepresentation of stories that I think everybody understands we need to kind of begin to address. And I want to also ask about artists like Thornton Dial, because Uh they are now being given a prominence which perhaps they didn't have even a decade ago. Yeah. They were a very important early influence, right? Thornton Dial, Purvis Young, artists like that. Tell me about their importance to you. Growing up in New York, the education that I had was very kind of centered around the New York School of Painting. Part of my biography is I grew up in the Caribbean. And um, I found that there was a way in which Southern artists in, in the Americas treated space. New York was very much about a flatness. So if you look at, like, of course, Andy Warhol or many of these artists, was really a kind of emotional drive to make things really flat. And when you thought about artists like Thornton Dial or Rauschenberg, and in the South you just have much more space. You see this in, like, Arte Provera artists. This art comes off the wall in really interesting ways. So I thought that there was a way in which how they were um, describing space felt much more real to me in trying to make works that felt like it was trying to deal with the Caribbean. There was a sort of sense also in the work being made in yards, mm-hmm. which has to do with a kind of everyday reality that, as you say, is a sort of aside from the, the white cube, it somehow it brings in the authenticity of the space in which it's originally made. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think if you're in Florida, like Captivo, or in Alabama, or even in the Caribbean, you're most likely to be outside when you're making work because it's nice. But if you're in New York where it gets really cold, you're going to be in a loft space or even in a small studio. So if you're in France, you're going to make easel painting because that made the most sense. So I think these sort of decisions inform what ends up becoming replicated. Let's talk about contemporary art. Which contemporary Mm. artists do you most admire? There's two artists actually I've been thinking about a lot. One of them is Izzy Wood. I always thought, like, what's really been interesting about British artists is that they've always had an artist that kind of um, speaks to the zeitgeist of a generation in in figurative artists. So you have Francis Bacon and a kind of post-war anxiety that the folks who grew up post-war carried with them for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. And so you see that in the work. And then I thought there's a kind of image-based culture that people are forming their identity now. Yeah, I would say probably Bacon, of course. You have Lynette, of course, and, and now you have Izzy. But um, but Lynette was forming like a different kind of visibility that was beginning to sort of become very conscious. This, and, is, this is Lynette Yadonboache. Yeah. yeah. And so she was forming this kind of humanization that was beginning to, to form around black bodies, 
on the American side, you had Kerry James Marshall, and over here you had Lynette. But Lynette is very much within a tradition of, I think, of British figurative painters that have hold a zeitgeist and then kind of explored that zeitgeist for the rest of their life because people have formed their identity in these moments. Does coming from the States to the UK, I know you were encouraged by artists to do this, Nary Ward who taught you and Chris Ophelia who yeah. was instrumental too in this, they urged you to come to Europe. Yeah, and Katie Siegel, a few very smart people. Right, Katie Siegel, right. Yeah. So tell me more about what you think that's given you. Does it feel like the right, it seems to me it's the right decision. You're making so much work, you're showing so widely. It, it mm. seems like it was a good thing to do. Yeah, I think what Chris said in his very sage ways was, it's going to give me time and space. Being in New York, when I went back, every corner means so much. You know, it's like where I had first kiss or whatever. So... I found by the time that I went to the studio, I had lived 20 different emotional lives, walking those 50 blocks or whatever, 20 blocks. And I really had to spend a lot of time getting all those voices out so that I could just be active with trying to find what the painting does and what the painting needed to do. And being over here, I very much consider myself an American and a New York painter. And that's what the work is trying to do, explore those. But... um it's given me a kind of silence that I don't know if I, if I was in New York, I would have had space to find. But that silence allows you to explore things that you would have wanted to in New York, but perhaps would have felt sort of the weight of that surrounding. Yeah, yeah. It would have been too much noise. That's really you know, Even my niece calling me saying, hey, I lost my AirPods. Can we go get, you know, all of those become like, uh, as much as I love her, those become something that have, I have to work through then to get back to the work. Does it allow you also to, you know, look over the New York scenes, both present and past, with a certain level of distance in terms of art history as well? I was thinking about the way that you've used a broom in your work, and it's obviously you cannot divorce from Jasper John's use of the broom, but at the same time it's like you used it as an American artist working in the UK, and somehow does that different context give you the freedom to do that in a way that you might not have had you been in a New York studio picking up the broom, if you like. I think it would have meant the same because when I'm trying to get to the work, it's really the same impetus. I mean, the only difference is that in New York, I'll, I'll be so conscious of it in New York. And over here, it's I'm not so conscious of it. You know, it, it is kind of how, you know, I went to the, that school of abstract action painting. Hunter was so big at in terms of thinking about that. I was thinking about Ed Clark and Oscar when I used the broom. Because <laughs> there was a period when I was at Hunter and Oscar came and he was using the broom. I thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny if I did this thing? And I remember sending him a text like, I'm going to do this thing that, I, that he did that that is stupid. <laughs> John's used it in a very poetic way. Rauschenberg used it in a very matter-of-fact way. Everything is here. But... John's used it in a way of it also representing its possibility as a way of making emotion. So it was the thing in itself and its possibility of what it could do, which I always thought was so brilliant. Dare I ask where you feel you sit in that kind of line between John's and Rauschenberg's use of that symbol? I, I think, you know, and I think this is very much my generation, and I think this had been missed about my practice this is probably the biggest misunderstanding of my practice is that, and including the artists I steal from shows, like 
some people have described this generation as the information generation because we have so much information at our fingertips. And you grow up in New York and you have everything. You're a city where you meet everybody, you have everything. Yet there's sort of like an assembly line understanding of art production where most artists of my generation is expected to maybe put one or two people together and then you that's how you get arrive at your painting. Oh, you put these two artists, blah, 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 and that, blah, blah, blah. And you could kind of insert a bunch of young artists in that boat. And I think it's like a kind of intellectually lazy way of understanding an artist. Oh, I get it because you did this and this. But my generation is like everything is right at our fingertips. And so I think... In a sincere way, why can't I think about everything? If I wake up and on Twitter there's 50 different people who had 50 different opinions, shouldn't I have listened to those 50 people? Yeah, you go to Mayfair, I mean, how many different artists are you going to see? Shouldn't they have an effect on you in some sort of way? So I think there is a a kind of um, maybe an active and willful laziness and how to think about what this generation is saying. And I think I'm in this generation. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 240 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Recent additions to the app are the Nassau County Museum of Art in Roslyn Harbour on Long Island, New York, the Strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, and the Old Operating Theatre Museum, the oldest surviving surgical theatre in Europe in the attic of the Old St Thomas's Hospital in London. Among the other guides on Bloomberg Connects are several museums and galleries where Alvaro Barrington has shown his work, including Tate Britain in London, where he'll take on the Sculpture Commission in the Duveen Galleries in 2024, and MoMA PS1 in New York, where he had his first solo museum show. If you download the app, you'll find that the guide to MoMA PS1 has sections on all its current exhibitions, including Daniel in Ramos's El Viejo Griot, Una Historia de Toro Nosotros. In a series of fascinating audio features, the Puerto Rican artist explores his symbolism and materials in depth. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We're in a part of your studio where you've got your own works, but but tell me what you have pinned to your studio wall where you're, if you like, at your most active. I have so much pinned to the wall right now. I've been really thinking a lot about the Baroque because I think... Uh, this is since your Rome trip. I, well, I went to Rome because of it, but there's this idea of America as being kind of in this Baroque phase and then black working class people in this broken Baroque phase. And then I was looking at this Baroque map by this Dutch map maker. Because for the show at the Tate, I've been thinking about, like, football. And for Rope Action, I've been thinking about basketball as these sort of maps. That's right. You've done works which respond to basketball courts as a kind of map. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And thinking about America as this sort of place of, like, uh, how do you think about, like, contemporary Baroque art? I mean, Jeff Koons is all Baroque. Absolutely. It's as Baroque as you could get. So it feels like he's a little bit out of favor because I think there's like a weird moral policing right now. But but um, I think Jeff is brilliant. So when you say you, you're kind of really interested in, in Baroque stuff, you've got loads of it around you in yeah. the studio. You're sort of pinning stuff up that keeps that interest going, if you like. It keeps, it keeps the mind ticking over in that direction. Yeah, everything. Everything from Caravaggio to 
Bellini, you name it, you know, everything. Because so much of it was about everything. The Baroque was really about everything. It wasn't just about a single idea, about architecture, about music, all of it. It has a kind of an extraordinary breadth of experience from the darkness of Velasquez, for instance, yeah. to the kind of floridness of, of the sort of more extreme Rococo ends of the, of the Baroque, yeah. Yeah, of course. And even, I mean, we met each other at the Vermeer exhibition, which, of course, is also within that Baroque. But you also form, like, a lot of ideas that are now being kind of held as contemporary truths, like the possibilities of capitalism and middle-classness is all within Vermeer and of trade and what trade can bring. And so you see all those maps in the background of Vermeer's and mm. the Japanese heating stool and the pearl that obviously came from somewhere else. A hat made with beaver fur and so on from the Americas. You know. Yeah. All of that is like how we understand contemporary life about global trade. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? I mean, being in London is probably the National Gallery or the Tate but my favourite is probably the Courtauld. Do you zone in on particular works in the Courtauld? I go and try to find one thing that's going to stick with me. and um, Do your slow looking. Yeah, and then like I like the idea of letting my emotional space determine what is interesting to me at that moment. And so you walk in and then you discover something that maybe if I went the day before, I wouldn't have bumped into it. I, wouldn't, I just wouldn't have had that emotional journey to lead me to that work. Sometimes you're just in the mood for a Rubens sketch rather than a Manet painting. Exactly, exactly. Although those Manet paintings are kind of uh, hard to beat. They are. They really are. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? I think right now, Carnival has become much, 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 much more of a kind of guiding light for me because it's so egalitarian and so much about how much people can participate. I mean, Notting Hill Carnival, you have like two million people. I think there was an impetus in art when you think about Andy Warhol and all these other folks in terms of a drive for Kusama, for art to be much, much, much more of a open phenomena, including, I mean, Basquiat, the first hip-hop video, number one hip-hop video was Blondie, and he was right there when she started rapping. So... I think there was a large impetus in American art for it to be extremely uh, much, much, much more open because that's kind of our, like I always say, like, you know, in Europe you had Dior and all these fashion houses, but in America we have Levi's and Ralph Lauren Polo or Supreme. We have like an aesthetic of like everyday working class, aspirational, like Ralph Lauren Polo is a Jewish guy from the South Bronx who wants to be who's like waspy in this aesthetic so i think my art needs to kind of even jeff coons it's very much about i feel like this is the most i've mentioned coons in a while <laughs> but i think about him when you say carnival does your interest in carnival originate in your caribbean background or did the notting hill carnival somehow kind of get you back in touch with carnival as a, as a cultural phenomenon from that diaspora um i always went to carnival in new york it kind of had had so many challenges that I aged out of it. And um, when I came over here, it felt like they did much more of a better job of managing a wide range of people who feel actively a part of it. So it made me feel much more ready to participate in it in a way that if I went to New York, I think maybe because of, you know, there was a period where, like, you just 
knew there were going to be five or six shootings. You know, you just don't want to catch a spray bullet. Whereas Notting Hill, I think it was much more about a bad propaganda policing of, like, how do we blame? But it's the safest event when you think about two million people in that kind of space. One of the interesting things, it seems to me, about Carnival was, especially when there were many spaces for black communities to be the sort of main actors, if you like, creating mm-hmm. their own space and leading a cultural festival. It was of such terrific importance, and that today is even more significant, if you like. It carries that with it. When so many other cultural spheres were denied to black people in Britain. Yeah, it's interesting because it's the largest celebration of black culture in the world. I mean, two million people together, and it's organized mostly by black and brown people. It's also one of those things that I find extremely interesting about the art world because it's like we had this funny moment where a few of us was talking about collective events that people do and we're like just bashing our heads and somebody from Notting Hill Carnival was there and they were like, Carnival? And it was so funny because we were so not thinking about that and here's this thing that two million people do. So it was so clear that we were like in this weird elitist mindset that just completely didn't really take account to what's obvious in front of us. And I, one of my things is I try not to miss what's in front of me. I wanted to ask you about a cultural experience which you credit with kind of, in a way, changing your mindset towards art, which was going back to Venezuela where you were born. Uh-huh. This idea of a journey to Venezuela somehow gave you the tools to become an artist. Yeah. Tell me more about that. I mean, it, it sounds kind of generic, but it was on the Orinoco River. I got with some friends and we said, let's just go down as deep as possible. Then I did like ayahuasca and all that stuff. And then it was like just going deeper. It began to pull apart the mental bondages that was playing out. I found myself down there. And while I travel Latin America, always meeting with artists and... I just thought that said something about me. I said, if no matter where I end up, here I am in a room with people who are making. And so that must say something deeper about me. I always think you attract the energy that is deep in you somehow. And so I thought this must mean something about who I am as a person. Which writers or poets do you return to? I was just rereading Truman Capote's Breakfast at Tiffany's. Mm-hmm. been thinking about that a lot, about a kind of New York that's somehow between Breakfast at Tiffany's and right before Sex in the City, which is a very particular type of New York of, like, weirdos in, like, Andy Warhol's would have been a weirdo in Pittsburgh, and all these kind of true weirdos, and they got to reinvent themselves and make great art. And I think a different New York happened after Sex in the City. I grew up in that first period, so at the tail end of it, so I wanted to make a body of work that thought about that. And so I read the book again, and I read it first when I was in my early 20s. And um, I found it even more hiring and moving now. And so this is the work called They Got Time, which is going to be at Tadeusz Ropak in, in, in Paris in October. Yeah, yeah. It's about a kind of older New York. It's a two-parter show, but it's not really a two-parter show. One is here, starting with Sadie, and it's about a kind of the Grenada that I left, which is my grandma, my aunt, and my uncle, and how the ideas of them became, like my uncle would be what today would be understood as a Rasta and the Bob Marley type, 
And so how my relationship with him has become this kind of global experience. You say Bob Marley anywhere and people know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then moving to New York, there's this kind of interesting period where art and fashion and Mark Jacobs and Little Kim and Kanye and all of them and um, the possibilities of the storefront, which I think is not, not the same as this generation now. Much more interactions happen online. But in that period, there was this idea of like going to galleries, going to the Gucci store, whatever, and that community that was happening around the storefronts. Yeah, the viral world existed not online, but as a sort of physical reality between different cultural spheres. Yeah, Yeah. you had to be online to get that Britney Spears album, but you were with thousands of other people who were also getting the Britney Spears album. Right. I want to talk about Audre Lorde because I know you've spoken about that extraordinary text, which is called Poetry is Not a Luxury. Yeah. Um, Tell me why that's an important text to you. Because art isn't a luxury. Art is a necessity. Art is how we understand how to be human beings. I think there's one of the violence that has happened in contemporary culture is people had believed that art needed to justify itself by becoming elitist. And, and that has transpired in how expensive art schools has become, um, who gets access to making. And so you see young kids who maybe need to learn life by making that being taken away from them. And I think that's very much because we've created this ethos that art is an elitist exercise. But art is a human exercise. Everybody deserves the right to make and think and look. And so what Audre Lorde was expressing in that much, much, much more eloquently (laughs) is that art isn't a luxury. Poetry isn't a luxury. It's a necessity. What music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? It depends on the energy. I mean, today I was listening to this rapper Gunna because his album came out a few months ago and I thought, oh, maybe I should listen to this. And I kind of like it. (laughs) But I kind of listen to everything. You've made so much work. I mean, you mentioned Tupac earlier on as like you you see him as the most important artist in a way of your lifetime and um, of the last 40 years. You've made direct reference to Tupac for La Vie en Rose, that show with uh-huh. Tadeus Ropak, which was themed around this really rather sweet poem about the you know, rose that grew from the concrete, yeah. written by Tupac. It seems to me that you're interested in, in a way, unpacking Tupac from the kind of, you know, this gargantuan image that we've developed of him, finding the real person within him, finding his story, his biography. I mean, he didn't feel that distant from me because there was a period where after my mama passed away, dear mama came out. A few years later, and um, I mean, every word of that song was like my imagination of what my mama and Afini Shakur was probably feeling. I mean, there were overlaps in their lives that was very clear to me. So he never felt like a distant figure. He felt very much like, oh, yeah, this thing is what I need to hear right now. And you found that too with DMX, right? I know you, like, for instance, we're talking about the sort of inscribed words into the concrete earlier Mm -hmm. on. There's a couple of those pieces directly quote DMX's lyrics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think part of the challenge is is that blackness has gotten defined by a very particular subgroup of 
experience, which is mostly working class black folks. But I think if you think about the global experience of black people, it's much more like middle class life or whatever. But I happen to be living a lot of those truths and those experiences. And um, at that period, I'm so is my community and so is my neighbors. And and, uh, I felt very, very, very grateful to have people who were saying that the things that we were experiencing... I always say, like, Snoop Dogg saved the hood. Like, I really, I mean, I mean, saved millions of people. I really remember a period, like, people who had experienced tremendous loss and pain who was doing crack cocaine on Monday when Snoop and Drake came out and put out the chronic. A lot of those people who needed to self-medicate because there was no way out began to smoke weed, which was way more healthy for them. I saw the same happen with Kanye West, where, you know, so many people came out of jail and had experienced rape and all these type of violence and became ultra aggressive. And hip hop in like that 98 era reflected that. But there were all these black kids who didn't want to be gangsters. And Kanye came out and he put on and Pharrell. And the kids who were getting beat up on Monday, when Kanye came out on Wednesday and by Friday, people were like, oh, you're just doing that Kanye thing. So you could be weird and skateboarding and all of that. And I know millions of kids who feel saved by that moment in Kanye because they knew what happened to them on Monday. It was like hip-hop is not a luxury, right? I yeah. Mean, it, it, it was a life force. Yeah, hip-hop is poetry. And then in terms of the works that you reference from that canon, extraordinary canon, it, it's so deep, you know, because I don't know, you've made reference to Drake, you've made reference to Nelly. Is it literally they're on your playlist or do you have to have a kind of deep connection? You have to, in a way, find a deep connection in those lyrics, which which will bring them out of you into a kind of artistic form, into a, into the form of a visual art piece? I think if I notice something and it's in my conscious enough, then I have to try to f- work my way through it. Like, I, I love Stanley Whitney. I've loved him for a long time. And um, I've thought about him for so long. And I said, oh, maybe I should make those paintings as a bad version of Stanley Whitney because... <laughs> <laughs> that you have moving colors and all of those stuff. I said, oh, man, I wonder if I could get away with that. And I text, I said, Stanley, I'm making Stanley with the pages. He said, keep trying. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I think if something's in my consciousness, then it means that there's something that they're doing that I need to answer to. And, I mean, that goes for any and every art. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? Coffee. Yeah, I really shouldn't do it, but every day I, I need I need it. So it's something about holding a cup and walking somewhere. That's my prayer. That's like, oh yeah, I'm meditating right now with this coffee in my hand. So when you say walking, not walking around the studio, looking at your work, you're talking about walking down a street, sort of yeah. imbibing the city as well as imbibing the coffee, if you like. Yeah, yeah. I would actively go out, get a cup of coffee or leave my house, walk out the way to get the right cup of coffee. I don't even need to drink it. I just have it in my hand. <laughs> it has a kind of meditative effect. Even it's if very meditative. Yeah. Okay, I love it. If you could live with just one work of art, what would it be? Um, this is an incredible painting by Frida of some fruits. Cactus fruits. Yeah. I just think that's so, it's the most brilliant painting. The bleeding, aren't they? Yeah. Or probably a Vermeer. I mean, that day that we, we saw each other at the exhibition was probably the best day of my life this year. <laughs> Outside of family stuff. Sorry. I mean, <laughs> things yeah. with my girlfriend. <laughs> Days spent with the love of my life. But outside of that, it's been, uh, that's probably the p- most perfect day. 
I mean, really, it just was like, Juliet organized this thing, and I just thought, oh, my God, I couldn't believe it. I flew from Sharjah just to go there, and it was the most perfect day because, I mean, what artist could do that today, bring so many people? Because he really implanted in the culture of zeitgeist, middle-class possibilities. It's the most perfect artist. He is indeed. And lastly, what's art for? Art's a tool that we use to find value in this thing that inherently doesn't have any real value, you know. And art, which is this, you know, culture production, the story we tell ourselves about what's valuable, it is the all-encompassing tool that gives us that, you know, idea of nation-state, idea of whatever. All of that comes from artistic production. Alvaro, thank you so much. Thank you. Alvaro's work will be at the Notting Hill Carnival in London on the 27th and 28th of August. The exhibition Grandma's Land is at Sadie Coles HQ in London from the 2nd of September to the 21st of October. They Got Time is at Tadeus Ropak in Paris from the 18th of October to the 27th of January 2024. An exhibition at Nicola Vassell in New York will run in November and December this year. Dates are to be confirmed. And Alvaro's Tate Britain Commission at Tate Britain in London will be in the spring of of 2024. And the conversation that Alvaro mentioned about Vermeer took place in the exhibition at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam earlier this year, and you can hear that on the episode of the Week in Art podcast from the 10th of February called Vermeer Special. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Do also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues, which is back in September. And please subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. We're on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram and Threads. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and a big thank you to Alvaro Barrington. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.